0: Welcome to another episode of Heretics and it's Saturday, so this is not an interview. I sometimes do sort of live stream interviews on YouTube and put them here and I I wonder if you guys are interested in that. But last week I put out one that was just me yapping away about, uh, well, I suppose people not wanting to be associated with me because I'm an evil bastard. And I was surprised by the reaction because people really responded to it on the audio, you audio listeners. This is just for you, by the way. This is not going out anywhere else. Uh, people really responded to it and and for the first time in a while, because I don't get much reaction from just the audio podcast. It's usually from YouTube uh, where there's a larger audience, but it's really nice, the audio. There's definitely something about uh, I'm just sitting here in my little room and talking and people across the world are listening to my voice, and it's not the same as YouTube with the big capital letters, words about, whoa, culture, and people are idiots, and everyone being all annoyed all the time. Um, it's just me talking. So that's nice. And also, because of the nature of my work, you, you would think as a podcaster, I'm talking all the time. But actually, firstly, I'm just tired of saying things, uh, particularly in social gatherings, and so in social media, I, I tend to actually go quite quiet and I just listen. And then if you actually listen on the podcast to how often I actually talk, it's, it might surprise you. We can see it on the editing. You can see uh, when my voice comes in. And it's really rather rare. People say, oh, you know, I like your podcasting and stuff. And I do sometimes think, well, really you like the guests that I choose. And I don't even do that because my guest booker, Ash Meikle, chooses them well we choose them together and he does a wonderful job um but yeah so what are people really enjoying um with that um I don't know I I, I suppose if I'm going to sort of be a bit nicer to myself it's there's an ability to sort of sway people a certain way and get them to reveal things of themselves that kind of thing uh and and but you know I've looked into what what that is uh, for my book, you know, I've got the psychology of secrets. I keep yammering on about it. That's now available to pre-order. It's out April the 11th. I think it's. I don't know. It might be harder to get if you're outside the UK. I saw one or two people have bought it in different countries around Europe, and you can you can get it to to go to those countries. You'll have to see with America. It, it will be out in America itself, I believe, in September. So that's quite cool. Um, but there are ways to make people trust you. And that's one of the things I look into in the psychology of secrets. And it's not necessarily what people think. It's not about being a polite, unassuming person uh, or an enthusiastic person or anything like that. That's what we tend to think it's all about. It's actually about being quite assertive. If you're quite assertive and compassionate, um, then more people will reveal secrets and things to you. They'll trust you. So that's quite an interesting discovery, I think. And I hope that serves some of you well. Uh, You're trying to get stuff out of people. Don't be polite. And that makes sense, by the way. I'm going to get onto, I think I'm going to title this podcast, uh, Is Unconscious Bias Real? And there's a reason why I want to go into that. But I think because it's an audio podcast, it really gives me the chance to sort of go into a few topics, things that I've been thinking about recently. I don't think I'm a particular uh, mind of interest um, at all, but I think that I am in the fortunate position where I get to spend my time surrounded by quite fascinating minds when I do speak to them. Um, which is often once a month now or twice a month and we do the, uh, the interviews and then the interviews come out over the next few weeks. So, but I have these moments where I get to really talk and then I listen back to the interviews and we edit them and I make the trailers and all these things. And I really get to soak up a lot of their information, both on and off air. And you get to have dinner with these people. You have phone calls and you're really learning all the time. Um, quite fascinating, uh, really interesting things from these people. Um, what was my point, though, anyway? I think my point was um, that... Well, you know what? I've already thought of a new book that I want to start writing, and it's going to be called... And I hope they don't mind me saying this, because who cares? I don't know. Well... Oh, maybe I'm not supposed to say. I don't know. But I want to write something about the YouTube forces. You know what I talked about last week? How they move us around. How people start as a YouTuber, and then, you know, you, you're you just sort of... You, you want your videos to do well. You want everything to do well, and you... you uh, keep trying to make your titles and the pictures more and more extreme. I got told off just this morning for doing that for, for someone's podcast. They didn't want that. They did, They felt like they hadn't said what I had set out to do. You know, when I was on Trigonometry's podcast, they had... My face now. Firstly, I looked very ugly, and I'm sure they don't even do it. I'm not. I'm not having a go at Francis or Constantine or anyone because they're just doing the same thing that I do. Uh, But it was quite an ugly photo of me. It really is bad. If you go to trigonometry on YouTube, it's it's pretty like even it's not one of those things where I'm being like, oh gosh, I hate myself. Like people, that's a terrible photo. It's the worst I've ever seen. Just 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 awful. Um, but it then says next to me something like, what was it? I think it was multiculturalism or something, yeah, has failed. And I didn't say that, and I don't know that I, I believe that either. Maybe that's, there are aspects of it that have failed, but then how are they gonna get across a nuanced view, like a human person, a real human being's view, which is always gonna be, hopefully, a little bit more nuanced than what we put in a thumbnail or what we put in a title. So I saw that and went, oh, okay, I get it. You know, they know what's good for their audience. And I can either have, you know, some concerns as I do. Oh gosh, are people going to think I'm saying a thing I'm not? And like 10,000 people watch it or let them do what they want and 200 and whatever thousand people watch it. Well, I don't know about you, but i would opt for the second. I think that's, you know, I'm getting my message out. And then when they've clicked it, it's much more nuanced because you're actually getting me talking. That can't be changed. But then to what extent am I hitting on sound bites? extreme sound bites in the hope of this video doing well. It's my career. And that's the funny thing is that our careers then get mixed up with, uh, our beliefs and things outside of our careers. Uh, most people listening are not podcasters. I I know you all do different jobs and work and you probably work extremely hard. Most of you, I I really do think most people work too hard. Uh, and, and we, you know, I do as well. So take a break. It's good that you're listening to a podcast. Take a breather. You're driving the car. You're having a jog. Take a breath. Nothing matters. We're all gonna die. So I've lost my train of thought again, haven't I? Maybe this isn't a good podcast. But few of you, I imagine, You know, I actually imagine most of you are trying desperately not to have to take a side publicly with some sort of culture war stance because it could get you in trouble with your job. Not so with mine now. Obviously, taking that step and and making it very culture war driven, that was a big moment. And increasingly, I'm finding not just people not wanting to be on my book or wanting to be in my presence or whatever, but also a creeping paranoia in me. Which, if I'm not careful, will probably, you know, given what I've learned about cults, will probably push me further and further into a corner. If I start to see people who I, I don't even know their opinions, and I start to assume that they think the worst of me, I'm just not going to speak to those people if, if, I, if, I feel, if I go too far that way. And I'm just going to want to surround myself with all those other YouTubers and the other people and all these, you know, and, and end up having that, yeah... It's a complicated one, isn't it? Um, So I have to be careful of that. At the same time, I do have that creeping paranoia. I do have that feeling of like, everyone I meet, I'm at a party, like a family friend party, or if I'm at like a book event, or whatever it is, and you meet other professionals and things like that, and you get speaking and they go, oh, so what do you do? Um, I had that with quite a famous person last night, actually. I was at a big book event thing, and it was a a famous person from like the mainstream media. And I said, hello. And she said, what do you do? And I said, I'm a YouTuber. And then I found myself dreading her next question. And it was always going to, you know, it's a normal question, isn't it? Which was just like, oh, oh what, what kind of channel? And I didn't know what to say. So I just said, oh, I interviewed Robbie Williams. Because really, I didn't want to say, oh, it's culture wars. And I sort of thought she would, you know what it is? It's not even that I thought she'd be offended. I thought she would turn her nose up uh, and, and completely unreasonably, I have I know, I know absolutely nothing of this person's politics or their uh, hobbies or what they're interested in. I really do not know. And even if there was like something written about who what they really think and blah 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 online, that's very different to their real persona. Who who might really enjoy my podcast? They might find it really interesting and and eye opening. But all I could think was that she would sort of roll her eyes. And I'm starting to get that way. I think with you know, what you would call the mainstream media or the legacy media, I start to feel that they're, I, to, to, to borrow a word from the woke, which I don't like to use, but I think they're in a very privileged and unique position. But at the same time, it's it's not great because they can't really say what they think if they do think other things. But if they don't, if they don't secretly question a lot of the stuff around uh, some of the woke stuff and the popular Meghan Markle and the trans stuff that it's all nice to, you know, all that stuff. If you say it, then everyone loves you and claps you and applauds you. Um, yeah, if, if they actually love that stuff, if they're on board with it, then life is really nice for them because they get to just say what they think, which is like, boo to Ricky Gervais, boo to Russell Brand, um, who who I also would now boo, given what he's done or is accused of doing. Um, I would, I would potentially boo him. Uh, I would, yeah, I wouldn't want to, you know, be sure on that. Anyway, they get to sit there uh, on, have I got news for you? What you know, all the programs that I like, I like what I lie to you. Well, and these are British shows, by the way, for people outside. And they just get to say what they think and they just get clapped and clapped and clapped. But then they meet people like me, and I feel like they'll look down. There was that bit, of course, I've mentioned it before, where Ian Hislop was banging on about Piers Morgan and saying, oh, no one watches him anyway. Gets 100 million views in a month, Piers Morgan. And I thought, what that means is that Ian is just not valuing views that come from outside of his inner circle on the B- at the BBC. And I find that really sad. So I figured, it, I, th- I think a lot of people who are not on board with this podcast, for example, and the discussions and the culture wars, they turn their noses down on it and they go, Oh, God, yeah, that, as if it's a very one dimensional, unimportant thing that we're all doing uh, because we're obsessed and not as smart as those people. Or I don't know what. Anyway, that, that might all be my paranoia, but that's how I feel like, Oh, God, the culture wars is a, you know, that kind of thing. It's like, well, it's all well and good by you because you're in at the BBC getting loads and loads of money for sitting around, you know, doing nothing. Going on Taskmaster, just waltzing around, um, whoring yourself out, quite frankly. <laughs> While the sort of gatekeepers keep scratching your back. Well, of course you don't. You're not incentivized to think that anything might be wrong with that situation. You're incentivized to just sort of okay, let the powers that be do their thing and don't rock the boat. I hope people know what I'm talking about to some extent. It's just a feeling that I've been having recently, and I, I find it quite sad. Um and, and that is that thing of being on the outside looking in. And I think a lot of you probably feel that way too, which is why you enjoy this podcast. And it's it's also, you know, about ideologies and things like that. But sometimes I find, I've been finding recently, particularly online on Twitter and YouTube, that when I want to make a point about, say, the culture wars, or it might be trans ideology or woke culture, whatever it is, um you start to attract groupies who then come to find that you have a view that is not absolutely pure. What I mean is like, you're not an extremist, basically. And they lose their fucking minds. It is absolutely bonkers. They all go completely crazy, and everyone has a go at you. Sometimes they say ridiculous things. Um, and I just had one, which is why I wanted the title this podcast about unconscious bias. And it's a commenter beneath my video with Peter Bogosian, And it's about the fact that I had mentioned a book I like, by, which I keep mentioning recently by Ted Chiang. It's called Liking What You See, colon, a documentary. Um, and it's absolutely fascinating. Maybe I can read a bit of it. So I'm going to do that first. Uh, I'm sure he won't mind if it's just a little bit. You can get the free sample on Kindle for things, can't you? Um, so it's, it's, it's written very much in a documentary style. And the first character, Tamara Lyons, first year student at Pembleton. Tamara says, I can't believe it. I visited the campus last year and I didn't hear a word about this. Now I get here and it turns out people want to make Cali a requirement. One of the things I was looking forward to about college was getting rid of this, you know, so I could be like everybody else. If I'd known there was even a chance I'd have to keep it, I probably would have picked another college. I feel like I've been scammed. I turn 18 next week and I'm getting my Cali turned off that day. If they vote to make it a requirement, I don't know what I'll do. Maybe I'll transfer, I don't know. Right now, I feel like going up to people and telling them, vote no. There's probably some campaign I can work for. What's Cali, I can hear you all asking. That's expressvpncom slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. Maria de Sousa, or Sousa, third year student, president of the Students for Equality Everywhere. Our goal is very simple. Pembleton University has a code of ethical conduct, one that was created by the students themselves, and that all incoming students agree to follow when they enroll. The initiative that we've sponsored would add a provision to the code, requiring students to adopt it's as long as they're enrolled. Anyway, it goes on like this about this whole thing. And what calliagnosia is, is they decide to turn off at a certain high school or secondary school. They turn off your sensor for beauty. So nobody at this high school or secondary school in Britain, as we call it, knows even if they are good looking or if their friends are or anything like that because they've had some sort of procedure done on their brain. And what an interesting topic. I mean, what a concept for a book. And that's why I'm such a fan of Ted Chiang, because Ted Chang also wrote um, Arrival, uh, the movie, which is, uh, what was it called again, Stories of Your Life. It's just a phenomenal short story that was made into a brilliant movie about aliens, about uh, octopus aliens that come down and um, When you learn their language, uh, something remarkable happens, and it's all to do with the Sapir-Whorf language theory, which I'm obsessed by as a multilinguist, which I always show off about. Um, but going back to this one, the idea of a, uh, a world where you can turn off the beauty sensor is a really interesting one, and it begs the question, would that be good for high schools? Would it stop boys and girls from distracting one another in class, would it stop preferential treatments of the good-looking kids? Because, come on. I mean, you know, I I think the reason we don't want to talk about unconscious bias, this is what I'm getting to, is that it it then moves into race. And to me, there is undoubtedly unconscious bias around race. I just can't have it being wheeled out by morons like Prince Harry or whoever else it might be as an excuse for everything, because ultimately the problem here is that there's unconscious bias about everything. So when I maybe debate with people who talk about unconscious bias with with regards to to race, my response is not, and I don't think it's a good response, by the way, uh, when people say, oh, you know, that doesn't exist, I think you've, you've lost the battle already. The very idea that there's no unconscious bias about anything, in my mind, Is absurd. That is absurd. We know that. You know, you meet a good looking person. I remember this. There was a girl at school when we were like 14. And I knew her fairly well as a sort of friend of a friend or whatever. I was a 14-year-old. Do you even have friends at well, guess you do, don't you, at 14? So I had a friend, and she was nice, but not not dim, actually. She was smart enough, but boring. Just a boring person. Now she might, as an adult, be extremely interesting so i'm not I'm not having a you know pop at some a girl I knew when I was fourteen or thirteen, but she was dull uh I had nothing to say, and I do think, and I've said this before that if you're good looking in your teens, you're screwed because most people change by the time they're like twenty or something they're not the they don't, you know they might not be as good looking definitely by the time they're forty or fifty, but the point is you just don't develop a personality of course, there are exceptions you know, but I'm going to generalize and say that I'm just I'm stick, I'm That's a hill I'm going to die on. But the thing interesting thing about this girl was that because I was fairly friendly with her, I would come across other people at my school or whatever who said, "Oh, you're friendly with her." Oh my god, she spoke to me. The other, what a funny, what a amazing. Girl. She's so oh, I couldn't believe how fun. You know, and obviously she was just extremely good looking. And I don't doubt that these other boys were well intentioned that they were trying to be impartial and just to say this was really interesting you know what they really meant was i can't believe someone so good looking actually gave me the time of day to speak to me and they found her to be just utterly charming she, you know she she objectively wasn't that char- just objectively mediocre person you know even her parents probably just thought pretty mediocre there's no doubt that looks in my mind i mean it's anecdotal but there have been loads of studies and research papers on it of course uh I've no doubt that there is unconscious bias. But I just got a comment the other day. Um, yeah, I do not believe there's unconscious bias. This is, the, this is the commenter. There is absolutely no real proof that unconscious bias exists. It's important to note that the book Andrew mentions about this subject is fiction. <sighs> yeah, I, I just think like this person, I, I totally get why, there's, why they say that. And I think it's just a, um, a defensive reaction. To being told all the time that everybody else is uh disadvantaged because they're a different race from you. And this is the complexity of things because we we go into this all the time, and and I talk about it, and I remember talking with Coleman Hughes, who is an African-American who says he initially believed there was unconscious bias or uh confirmed evidence of biases within the police or whatever in the States against African Americans. He now no longer believes that to be true and the reason for that is extremely complex but he's really looked into a lot of stats and, and tried to find the cause and correlation of all of this and uh, what we fail to take into account is the millions of other biases but also the cultures uh, and the economic situations of different kinds of people and he says that when you actually account for all of that there doesn't seem to be a bias, that's his opinion based on what he's researched. Of course, a lot of people think there is uh, extreme bias in the police, and I think it's a really, really complex thing. But when we start that argument, I think that's the point I want to make. When we start that argument by saying there is no unconscious bias, we're basically saying there is no unconscious then. Because what is the unconscious if not a system of biases, a system of prejudices? It's a system that works out where you you don't even think about it. That's the point. It's unconscious. And you see someone and they're tall. You make an assumption. A short person, you make an assumption. I bumped into someone last night. It was a spitting image of British comedian Harry Enfield. He was on the train. And I just immediately had an unconscious bias where I prejudged him as a comedian. And it turned out he was hysterical. The guy was an absolute gent. He was really, really funny. He was great. So... I think there's all different kinds of bias that are not explored enough. I think, I think definitely beauty bias is is high up, it's got to be. And if you do buy into the idea that African Americans, for example, or just black people in general, are biased against, then you it sort of begs other questions that people don't want to ever ask. But then, okay, okay, well, would you rather be uh, an extremely good-looking person from a minority, or would you rather be an extremely ugly white person? Do you want to be a really rich person from a minority or a really poor white person? All those kinds of things. And it starts to get very, very complicated. But I would also recommend that people get hold of Ted Chiang's, um collection of short stories. Stories of your life and others. That is what it's about. But yeah, beauty is a weird one. Would you turn it off if you could? Do you think schools should do that? Um, I don't know how you could write to me really, but you can tweet about it. I've been thinking about cancel culture as well. Uh, Similarly, I am a bit tired of having to go, that doesn't exist, that does exist. Because, you know, we're talking about 80 million people in this country or 350 million in the States, 8 billion or whatever it is worldwide. It's a lot of people and there are a lot of different circumstances. I mean, does cancel culture exist? Does a culture of cancelling exist? Does a culture of wanting to cancel exist? Well, yeah, I spoke about this last week and this kind of policing that we do in tribes. It feels good. It obviously feels good. To to incentivize us to do anything, I really do believe that uh it has to feel good. And I challenge you now. Again, get in touch if you disagree somehow. Uh I don't know how I mean some I, I don't mean if you disagree somehow. It's it, as if, as if I can't imagine how anyone could disagree with me. I just mean get in touch somehow uh with me if you disagree. Um because I cannot think of a single thing you would do unless it felt good to do, and then people start saying, oh, well." The <laughs> people start as if I'm having this argument every day. People start saying thing about that. Let me tell you, um, what about when you just do something out of duty? It's like, well, yes, duty has been ingrained in, in, in you, so that you you know, it, it, so that it feels good to do this thing. Why else do you do it? Um, so I feel quite sure of that. And that's a shame because it it does make us feel a bit um selfish. Uh Sun Tzu wrote an essay called A Man's Nature is Evil. The idea behind this essay, and this is actually, I got this from this uh what, what did I get this from? A research paper on callignosia, which is the fictional medical treatments, uh in um in Ted Chang's book. Um But I can't see who wrote what I'm reading. It doesn't say. But it's a research paper on callignosia on Bartleby.com. And Sun Tzu wrote an essay called A Man's Nature is Evil. The idea behind this essay is to show that a man's nature is evil and that goodness is the result of conscious activity. This idea depicts that human beings are evil from the beginning of their lives. One must be taught the ways of the sages, as Tzu would describe in his essay, Tzu compared human beings to that of a warped piece of wood. Tzu states that a warped piece of wood must wait until it has been laid against a straightening board, steamed and forced into shape before it can become straight. Huh. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I, well, look, I don't think that people are evil. I think evil is a bit of a an archaic, dramatic, melodramatic word, really. What does it even mean? When we... Talk about psychopaths when I've met psychopaths and spoken to them. There doesn't seem to be this driving force of evil. It's actually perhaps contempt, maybe even a bit of disgust, but mostly just nothing. Just how can I do well from this particular situation? And that is it. And I think that a psychopath is just an extreme version who's more in touch with that kind of what will make me feel good or more honest about it. They seem to have some sort of issue as well with connecting to the bits of empathy that we have for helping other people. And when I say empathy for other people or for helping other people, what I mean is the fact that it just makes you feel good. And I think Sun Tzu's point, although I don't agree with this idea of evil, I think his point about um, having to learn is really, really important. I don't believe that empathy is innate. And then you've got to ask about whether good and evil are innate. And I, I don't really think they are. I think they're concepts that we've made up. And there are probably alien races out there who have completely different concepts of what is good and evil. And would be appalled by many of ours and would be appalled by theirs. And it's totally, maybe they have a culture where you just, you're supposed to just murder each other. And it's it's just immoral not to do that. That seems extreme. So I don't really know about that. But I think there are different kinds, and if you don't have to travel, I was—I think I was saying a bit of this last week. You don't really have to travel to another galaxy to see this. You just have to go back a hundred years, or fifty years, or twenty years. Go back to the Me Too movement. People before that, people just laughed when actors and directors said horrible things to women and had sex with them to try and move them up the path or whatever. Well, now we think that stuff's really bad, and people can't do it, and they're kicked out of our tribes if they try and do it. That doesn't mean there's some kind of arc of constant progress. We might be wrong about that. I mean, it seems intuitive to me, right? It seems intuitive to me that we don't want women being put in this kind of situation where there's a huge power imbalance and them made to have sex to climb the ranks or whatever. But but who am I as some sort of eternal arbiter of morality forever? Maybe generations to come, maybe in a thousand years, they'll say like, "Oh god, that was ridiculous. I can't believe that." Now They didn't let women fuck everywhere to climb the ranks, or they didn't let men just express their Who Who knows what thing that seems crazy to us right now might be morality, or might be considered moral in a thousand or ten thousand years, or on an alien civilization somewhere. So I think what happens is you grow up and you you learn about different kinds of uh, uh, social, societal norms and things like that. And you learn, oh, in this culture, we don't eat dogs. We love dogs. So then you see a dog suffering, y- your heart melts. It, it starts to hurt you. It physically hurts until you save that dog. Not so for cows and pigs. I suppose they're not domesticated in the same way. I was saying last week as well, I think, uh, I've seen plenty of videos where they're sort of just wandering, wandering around, wagging their tails, pigs and things, you know, and uh, what? Cause they stink. Well, you, if a dog stinks, you don't, you know, you still care about it mostly. I think that's a really prime example of how empathy seems to be learned. We've learned in our society, we do not eat dogs. Dogs are our friends. We feel bad for them if they suffer when a pig or a cow is in that situation as as millions of them are and i'm not lecturing about vegetarianism by the way I, i'm not it's not the point i'm making at all i just i just think we don't care and i think it's because of it and that just shows the extent to which we cannot care if a society deems something acceptable so what are we just pawns in some sort of mad system it, it is just a fact that loads and loads like most normal nice people who would have gone around and given their grandma a big hug and got her a present and whatever for her birthday, all this nice stuff, would have just like kept a bunch of slaves and just would not have thought twice. And the same person who goes and helps out at the local food shelter was also denouncing Jews to the Nazis. That was just happening. I think we actually do our kids a disservice and I think we don't teach properly about cult ideology and the banality of evil. We just don't teach properly at schools and things. It it should be so easy to do and it's why we don't worry so much about the left. We are given this narrative and our kids are given this narrative of, oh, people back then were evil. I remember being at school and I was mostly asleep at school. I was so tired. I didn't want to misbehave, but you do because you're so tired all the time. It's so hard. You can't sleep enough as a teenager. Like there's not... It's never enough. Like 15 hours in a day, it's like that wasn't enough sleep. And you go into school and you're just tired and everyone's wearing a gray drab suit, at least at my school they were, with the gray buildings. And man, awful. Um, But I was half asleep the whole time. But again, I, I remember thinking when we learned a bit about slavery or the Holocaust, like, oh, what I wouldn't give to be back in that time and to be helping people. No, I wouldn't. I don't know. I'd like to think I would, but I just I just would be a different person. I would have grown up with different uh, moral norms. I would have... I, I, I don't know. You want to be appreciated by your cult. And if your cult happens to be an entire country or a world, which it is in a sense, then you do what works by them. Because that's how you get a, a praise. You know? Or praise appraisals. That's how you get praised. I I just, I I don't see any other way. for, For those saying, no, no, there is innate goodness in us. I don't know how you can explain slavery. I don't know how you can explain the Holocaust, the Hutus in Rwanda, the Tutsi. How do you explain that stuff? Please, somebody give me another idea. If you think that there is something good about a human being, what we're really doing is we're just adhering to what our society deems acceptable. And we are making sure not to transgress those rules because we'll be kicked out the tribe. It's selfish. And I think that's okay. I remember Will, Will Storr in his book, The Status Game, he talks about that. And he says like, look, some people don't like this concept because they just don't like the concept. And for me, that's not enough to not believe something, you know? Uh, a lot of people are like how can you not believe in god and you know i am an atheist i know a lot of you are believers and that's fair enough and they go don't don't you realize pascal's wager you should believe in god because that will help you and it's like i can't make myself believe I, you either do or you don't and similarly yes it, it it might be seen as a distressing or a disturbing concept that nothing we do is actually you know, there is no altruistic act let's say So, But Will Storr actually said, okay, forget that then. Some people have a difficulty believing in things when they are negative. And that's a self-defense mechanism. And I understand that. And what Will said was, okay, well, let's look at this from a positive angle. How extraordinary, how amazing of nature, of our evolution, that hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years, really, but hundreds of thousands of years of human evolution have conspired, to make it so that we are incentivized to do good. Thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years of people who wanted to help others, people who felt good when they helped others, felt bad when they didn't, survived better to pass on their genes. Their tribes fared better than the tribes of others who were more selfish and didn't get a good feeling when they did good things. Of course, that then raises the philosophical question of, well, hang on, how can we put people in prisons and things like that if such a determinism or such a deterministic world is our reality? Somebody just doesn't feel bad when they kill, so we take their freedom away. That seems quite extreme. And I think the only answer is, well, maybe it is. And that's, that's okay because you have to live as though This is not a deterministic world. It's the only way to go on. You you can't live thinking, gosh, everything's sort of laid out in a way already. You've got to think, no, there's free will and you have to act as though there is. And that involves locking people up who've done awful things. And that's part of the whole deterministic dance anyway. You know, that was always bound to happen. We were always going to lock them up because we needed to sort of expel them from the tribe and keep them from continuing to murder. But that whole thing I was just saying about um, politeness. Sorry, well, adherence to societal norms. I I, I think that is what politeness is. So something that is polite today was not polite 100 years ago. We've all seen those adverts for like banks and things like that, where they talk about the different languages of the world and what is polite in one country, like spitting is not in another and spitting out chewing gum. Or if you finish your plate in Japan, that's impolite. So polite if we look at politeness rather than good and bad, it's even more obvious that this is a very, very subjective thing, and it really, really means adherence to group think. And I think it's not a bad thing. I, I, you know, we need some level of politeness and courtesy in society for us to thrive and, and to exist—to you know, some sense of social cohesion. But going back to my beginning point about um, secrets and who we reveal to and how we can get people to reveal stuff to us. It has been found that most people think that being polite is an indicator of whether or not you will be trusted with their secrets. And that is actually one of the worst things you can be. That's why my book, The Psychology of Secrets, Adventures Adventures with Murderers, Cults and Influencers, is such a seminal work, and you must go and get it now. But... It's an interesting point. I did think, okay, so why is that? Why is it that actually we don't tell people who are polite? And you think about what polite means and has meant in situations where it's life and death if you reveal that secret. Well, look at the Stasi. So what does a polite person who lives under the rule of the Stasi, the oppressive regime, what does a polite person do? How does a polite person behave? Well, a polite person, in my view of what politeness is, is somebody who reports their neighbor. You know, who sees, hey, my my neighbor's into pornography. I'm going to report them. Pornography was one of the key things the Stasi used to embarrass people. They used to stuff it in uh, people's mailboxes just to create chaos, and then their neighbors would have to report on them. They also forced some of the people working for them to attend like premieres, cinema premieres of pornographic titles, um, to then have that as collateral to use against them at a future date. Pornography was the thing. Pornography was the symbol of transgressing politeness. It was the ultimate rudeness because being polite was the virtue in that society. And it is, in all I think, in all societies in many respects, if politeness means just doing what is right by that society. Um, so if you're a polite member of the Stasi, if you're a polite person living under that, you, you see your friends got a pornography in their mailbox, you report them. So why would you tell your secrets to this person? It just makes no sense. So it's amazing we have actually learned not to trust overly polite people. Just you know those you everyone knows those people like the suck up at school, always putting their hand up, always. Those kids were polite as well, but they would have told on you in a second. And that's why the heroes in our movies are not polite people. Think of um, Catch Me If You Can, Frank Ab- Abagnale. Think of um, the talented Mr. Ripley. We we don't respect the polite person. We want the one who's like, I play by my rules. I do what I want. I get the job done. Don't know what accent that is, but it's just someone in a movie who gets the job done regardless. Um, So we actually tell assertive people, people who get the job done. That's who we trust. So I think, I don't know. I don't know entirely. You know, this is a few different thoughts I've put together. And I think... It is important to be polite, uh, definitely. But I think with an awareness that doing so, uh, when that means submitting to a cult, a community, you know, not not ever being the one to go, hang on a minute, guys, no. That's really tough, and that's tough on both sides, right? Because I think when I talk about politeness, I, I guess you guys think of like being woke and stuff like that. Being woke is a hugely polite thing to do. It it does often mean not really asking questions, although they would say it does mean asking questions, but these are questions that are very acceptable to a BBC audience or whatever. But on the other side, I've spoken about this last week as well. You look at like the gender critical ultras, or if you look at Scientology, or if you look at um, incel communities, or whatever it is, being polite means, you know, signing up 100% to the ideology. Um, and that means ever, if you ever say, hey guys, no. Like, I don't agree with what you're saying. That's not being polite. And you're out. But that's someone I'd tell a secret to way before I'd tell a secret to all those people who are just signing up to it. I always talk about Amanda Montel's Cultish. I really liked that book. And I think the only... Look, we're all in sort of culty communities. We're all in communities where, oh, there are certain things you can't say because it would be impolite to do so or improper. And in her book, she's made that suggestion, which I I think is life-changing, and I say to people all the time now is, you know, don't try and leave that community necessarily if you're finding it a little bit cultish and a little bit uh, imposing and whatever. Make sure that you are actually part of several different communities so that you're never in a place where you're too scared to speak out because you might be kicked out and you'll have nothing. It needs to be that you are... Able to speak out and say, hey, I don't like what our community is saying. And they go, well, well, get out. And you go, okay, well, I've got three other communities. So screw you guys. Meh. Anyway, I hope you have found this of interest as something a little bit different a Saturday episode of me just rambling, like Adam Buxton's ramble chat. My book, The Psychology of Secrets My Adventures with Murderers, Cults, and Influencers, is a playful romp. I don't know. It's, it's a psychological thriller. It had a review. Do you want to hear the review? I got a review and it was great. And it was from an Instagrammer, uh, a bookstagrammer, actually. Um, I wonder how I can find it. I do I do this one line. I, you know, I can't have people like going through and editing. It's just not the, uh, what's it called? Exactly. The funds. Uh, this was by the Instagrammer, a fine read, who goes by Alice and is a bookstagrammer. And uh, they gave The Psychology of Secrets by Andrew Gold five stars. And they have a picture. They got the. I didn't even know the book's going out. I, no one's even given it to me. It's coming out in like a month. I don't even have a copy. But they get like this copy from whoever. And she wrote, right? And this was exciting because it's the first time I've ever had a book reviewed. Like, wow, it's the first time I've had a book. She wrote, it's always incredibly nerve-wracking when you read a book that you absolutely love because when it comes to writing the review, you want to give it the justice that it truly deserves. When I say love, I'm not sure if that's even the right word for how I feel about this book because I don't think you can love any of the topics discussed in it. Perhaps a better phrase would be utterly captivated. The psychology of secrets takes readers on a gripping exploration through the intriguing worlds of murders, cults, and influencers, to name a few, shedding light on the complex interplay of secrets and human behaviour and unravelling the mysteries that lurk beneath the surface of seemingly ordinary lives. What truly sets this book apart is its remarkable depth of research and gold's, that's me, ability to weave together compelling narratives that are as enlightening as they are enthralling. With each chapter, I found myself drawn deeper into the intricate web that secrets create, from the mesmerising allure of cult leaders to the subtle yet powerful effects of social media influencers. The prose is nothing short of exceptional, rich in detail, yet accessible and engaging, making the most complex psychological concepts readily understandable. Whether you're a seasoned enthusiast of psychology and true crime, or just getting started, The Psychology of Secrets is sure to leave a lasting impression. From the chilling to the downright bizarre, this book had me on the edge of my seat from start to finish. It's a damn fine read, and a must-have for your shelf. The Psychology of Secrets by Andrew Gold will be published on the 11th of April by Pan Macmillan. Well, there you go. That's a pretty glowing review. I want more reviews now. I bet a lot of them will be horrible, because some people hate me. But it's a big, lovely purple book. And there's also the audiobook. I read that over four days. It took nine to five. Bloody strenuous. All out soon. And about many of the topics that I've discussed today and will discuss in the future, of course. I hope you guys enjoy it. Hope you guys like this last uh, 40 or so, 45 minutes um, Saturday episode. Do you want more like this? If so, well, you can only redo it. On Spotify, you can put a little thing saying, like, oh, you know, this is what I thought. Give me some topics that you would like me to explore next time and I'll have a think and keep sharing this podcast around please do and get hold of my book um the psychology of secrets judy was boring hello then judy discovered jumbacasino.com. it's my little escape now judy's the life of the party oh baby mama's bringing home the bacon whoa take it easy judy